Awesome. All right. Good to see you guys. Look, the kids already know what to do. They're fleeing the building. So elementary kids, you guys are dismissed second through fifth. And uh, youth, junior and senior high, I don't know if we have any of you guys. The spring forward morning is rougher on the youth than it is on any of us. But by the way, you all look great this morning. God bless you guys. Extra star in the book of life for you next to your name. I'm, I'm quite sure that when you get up there and Peter's looking through the, no, Peter's not actually the one looking through the book. Um, anyway, hey, just a, a quick announcement. So um, some of you mentioned that uh, you heard the, uh, the radio interview on KFAX. You also mentioned that I sounded taller on the radio, which I suppose is a, is a good thing. But um, uh, <laughs> it took Don Jay a minute, but he got it. <laughs> Bless his heart. I was reminded of that when poor Obi was up here trying to read the scripture and he had to practically be on his knees to reach the <laughs> microphone. We had to cut this table down actually to make it be, you don't need all that information. But anyway, I want to mention, I do want to mention the Israel trip because uh, I was so encouraged last week, uh, hear me of little faith. You know, you need about 40 people to make an Israel trip a viable trip. And so we had included those other three churches, thinking that between the four churches, we might get to our 40 that we needed. And I have to say that just from our church last week, I was so encouraged. We have about 35 people who are very seriously considering, and a number of you who have already um, sent in your deposits or done your online space reservation. Um, so I'm super, super excited and super encouraged. If you didn't, well, so this Israel slide, that's one of those where you need the special little decoder ink that you wipe over the top of it and then you eventually see the text. I don't know what's happening with our projectors sometimes, but anyway, come to Israel with us if you, uh, if you can. If this is the first you're hearing of it, Catch me afterward, um, and I'll give you one of the brochures. We're super excited about the itinerary. We're super excited about the, the cost we were able to achieve. It's $33.25 per person for 10 days, all inclusive of uh, air and hotels and tour entry fees and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's going to be a great tour. So if you've, uh, if you've never been, uh, we would love you to come. Uh, out with us. I think that's enough for the commercials this morning. My last commercial is if you don't have a Bible, you might want one this morning. So raise your hands and we'll bring one to you. You can use the Bible on your phone. So there's one uh, up here, a couple over here. So um, anyway, let's pray and just ask the Lord. We have a great text uh, to look at this morning and let's just ask his blessing uh, on it as we go to study it. So Father, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you for the rain, Lord. We thank you for this wonderful, warm and dry place that we can meet, Lord, that you've provided for us. We thank you for this time that you've set aside, Lord. We thank you for getting us all up early this morning and bringing us here, Lord. And we're here because we believe that you have something that you wanna say to your church today, Lord. And we, we come expectantly, Lord, we come um, just anxiously, Lord, to hear what it is that you have for us. And so we pray that you'd bless your word, Father, as it goes out. I pray that I would decrease, Lord, and that your spirit would increase, Lord, that he would be our teacher this morning, Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 6. We're going to look just at verses 7 through 13. And uh, Rick is selling popcorn in the center aisle or Bibles. Either one, you can get it from Rick in the center aisle. There were a few. Maybe they got scared. It's okay. 
So uh, we're going to be at uh, verses 7 through 13 this morning. And you remember when we last left off in that first section of chapter 6, six we had started to see what we kind of called the unfolding of unbelief. And remember, we watched the rejection of Jesus in his hometown of Nazareth for what was this time the second time. Remember, he had returned in his grace to allow them, you know, almost three years later, to allow them the opportunity to respond to him differently. This time, maybe to receive him as they had so rashly rejected him the last time, even tried to kill him, remember, by throwing him off of a cliff just three years earlier. And yet, once again, we watched them, we said that they were jumping to the wrong conclusions about Jesus because they had this very dangerous sense of familiarity with Jesus. And in their rejection, they really limited that powerful work of Jesus that he wanted to do there. And then the whole thing, remember, it just left Jesus to marvel. It said he marveled at their unbelief, at just their determined commitment to not believe in him. And so we saw at the very end of our text that he left. And he left Nazareth never to return again. And that instead, what we read, is that he then went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So he took his ministry and he took it to the surrounding towns and villages where he would be well received, no doubt again, by huge crowds. No doubt again by these great multitudes that we've seen in every other area where he's ministered. And today's text, these next few verses in chapter 6 as Mark continues, is a text which is very much I believe it is just born from what just happened to Jesus there in Nazareth, where strictly on a human level, I think that we could say that what happened in Nazareth just broke Jesus' heart. And it broke his heart, I think, the rejection, not just because he experienced it on a personal level, but I think even more so just to see it in the people to see their determined unbelief and to just to comprehend and to consider thus the consequences of it as they rejected him and they rejected the gospel message and they rejected their part in this entirely new kingdom that Jesus was ushering in. And so it's at this point during this sort of a third teaching tour that he was now on there in the Galilee that it's actually Matthew who I think records some pretty important words. They're very insightful words. And I think that they reveal Jesus' heart to us in a powerful way. And I want to spend just a moment on them because I really think that they help to set the stage for us for what we see in our text today. In Matthew chapter 9, kind of the companion account, it says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So that effectively is Matthew's kind of expanded version of what Mark just told us, right? But then Matthew adds this. He tells us a little bit about what happened as they were out there on that circuit. And he writes of Jesus that when he saw the multitude he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. 
Now, I don't know how you read that, but when I read that, this is a pretty powerful verse to me, even in our English translations. But actually, the language that Matthew uses in the original Greek gives us the sense that Jesus wasn't just moved, but he was deeply moved. I mean, that the the yearning that Jesus had for these people was a yearning that reached down into and it, it kind of came up from his very core of his being. You know, we talk about something really touching us in our hearts, right? But in the ancient mind, they would talk about something impacting them in their bowels, Right? I mean, the deepest, without getting too graphic, right? The deepest part of the deepest part of who you really were. And this is the language that Matthew uses. And this is the way that Jesus was impacted by these desperate, lost people who he said were like sheep with no shepherd. Right? He has this compassion upon them because no one is looking out for them. No one is taking care of them and the great spiritual needs that they have. And just think of this picture from a purely physical sense, right? Is there a more pitiful kind of a condition that we could be described? We, we think about these, this flock of these helpless sheep. Right, just out there on their own. They're wandering aimlessly. They're foraging restlessly. There's no one to protect this flock, no one to lead this flock. And a flock like that, of course, is going to be scattered. A flock like that ultimately is going to be destroyed. And that's how Jesus saw these people. He saw them with this hunger that they had for God, but that there was no one to point them to God. There was no one to lead them into this relationship with God. And of course, we have to ask ourselves just how many people are there each and every day that we come in contact with who are in exactly this same condition? You just can feel from them the, the weariness and the sense that there's a scattered and there's no one who is shepherding them. And then Jesus, again, in the Matthew account, Jesus gives us the solution to the problem. He says this. He says, then he said to his disciples, he said, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So this all happened, right? Mark just doesn't go into this kind of detail, but it's in this context Right? It's in this heartbroken, deeply moved context that what we see next, again, this is kind of where Mark picks it up now in verse 7. Now we're going to see Jesus sending those laborers into the harvest. It says in verse 7 that he called the twelve to himself and he began to send them out two by two. So this is the Lord of the harvest sending laborers out into the harvest. He takes these first 12, these 12 men that he'd chosen to be with him, and now he sends them to go out from him and really go out on behalf of him. And at the end of our text, we're going to see that they went out specifically to preach the gospel, ultimately to to advance the kingdom. He sends them out into the harvest field, but before he does it in this passage, he calls them to himself, and we see right here that he commissions them, if you will, into Christian service. 
Can I say that, that every single one of us as a Christian, each one of us have a call of God on our life. God has called each one of us to do something in his kingdom for the advancement of his kingdom. Right? We know that we've all been called by Jesus to the great commission, right? Or the great co-mission that we're on with him. When he said in Matthew 28, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded to you. And then he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we're all called to be doing this, but of course, we're each called to be doing it in different ways, right? The Ephesians passage where Paul talks about some apostles and prophets and evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping, of, right? There's those kind of giftings. And then he talks in the Corinthians passage, right, about diversities of gifts, but the same spirit, differences of ministries, but the same Lord, diversities of activities. He says, but it's the same God who works all in all, right? So whatever you're called to do, it might be something big, it might be something small, it might be something at your workplace, it might be something in your home, it may be something out on the mission field somewhere. It doesn't matter what it is that you've been called to do. All of us are called to do something. All of us are called to minister to someone. And I would go so far as to say that if the kingdom of God is not advancing in some way through your life as a Christian, then the life that I'm living is a life that isn't like Jesus. Because it's just what he does, right? He came to seek and to save that which was lost, right? He came to build up the body of Christ. You can't have a Christ-like Christianity that doesn't involve service because Jesus himself was a servant, right? It says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So just imagine that the Lord comes to you, right? Like he comes to all of us and he says, okay, this is what I have for you to do for the expansion of my kingdom. And he puts this unique calling on our lives, whatever that is, Right? And then he sits you down and he says, okay, now let me tell you about some of the things that you're about to run into as you go out to do this. Okay, here are some things that I want you to really be aware of so you're not surprised when they happen. Now, how valuable would that kind of information be? Well, of course, that's exactly what he's doing in these verses. Right? He commissions them, and now he's about to give them kind of this little sermon before they head out. Now, again, think about these guys, these 12 men. Try to put yourself in their place. This is a sermon that you would want to hear. Right? This is a sermon that you'd get up even an hour early to come and hear. Right? Jesus is sending them out to do something that is about to stretch them way beyond anything that they are comfortable with. We've talked about it, right? Not one of them has any kind of theological education or rabbinical training. They were all probably only in their early 20s, except for John, who probably was in his late teens. So they're all limited in education. They're limited in experience. They're limited in resources. They may have even been limited in common sense, right? And yet these are the men 
These are the first men that Jesus sends out in the history of the world, right here in this verse. And he sends them out to represent him and he entrusts to them the most important message in all of human history. And, and all of that is simply to say this, that if sometimes you too feel like you're limited in education and you're limited in experience and you're limited in resources, if, if you feel like that, then I can tell you that you are probably, actually you are exactly who God is looking for. I love in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says that we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Now, you guys, guess which part of that verse we are. I'll give you a hint. It's not the treasure. Right? The gospel is the treasure. We are just the earthen vessels. Right? We are the rugged clay pot or maybe in some cases, the cracked pot, right? That we just make the treasure stand out that much more. I've used this illustration before, but think about it. When you go to a jeweler to buy a diamond, they don't just fling those beautiful stones out on some beautiful white polished glass countertop. What do they do instead? They lay the stones out on a piece of black cloth. Why do they do that? Well, because against that dark background, those beautiful stones just appear that much more brilliant, right? Their beauty is actually enhanced because of the stark contrast against that black background. And once again, you guys, we are not the diamonds in this picture, right? Our lives are the black cloth. And for some of us, that black background is a deep, deep shade of black. But if that's you, like it is me, can I encourage you, that just makes Jesus look so much better on you, right? His glory just shines that much more brightly from you and that work that he's done in your life and then the fact that somehow now he's called you to be part of him doing that in someone else's life against their own black background. It's amazing, right? Again, it's Gail Irwin, I think, who put it so well when he said something to the effect of, you know, the only thing that makes me wonder about God is his choice of me, right? I wonder it every Sunday morning. I, I know you do too, right? But never use the fact that God chose you or that you're not worthy. Never use that as an excuse to run away from the calling God has. Just step out and do whatever it is that you know he's called you to do. And the whole idea is that his extraordinariness would be seen in our ordinariness. Right? That people would have an interaction with you, right? And that they would walk away from you and they would say, you know what? I just ran into something supernatural in that person. Because what I just sensed, I know didn't come from them. They are too simple of a person, right? There was something otherworldly about them. There was something supernatural about their life. God uses very ordinary people to accomplish his work, right? Ordinary people just like you, 
just like me and just like these disciples. So you can bet that when he gathers these guys together and he says, okay, I'm about to send you out all by yourselves, right? I'm not going to be with you, but I'm sending you out to represent me. But let me tell you some things that you can expect out there. Let me tell you how you need to conduct yourself so you can properly represent me. You can bet at this point they were all ears. They were eager to hear anything that he might say that would help them. And I just want to say, I think that we need to bring that very same sense of an urgency to this passage. Right, Jesus says, you know, we think, okay, Lord, you're sending me out to do this thing. Now, what would you say to a person like me? Well, let's see, right? Because now I think these next verses become very valuable instruction to us. And they provide, I think, some really important principles that apply to any ministry that any of us are doing. So let's continue on in verse seven. It says, he called the 12 to himself. He began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. So first he gives them this calling and then immediately gives them the enabling that they need for that calling. He says, I'm going to give you the same miraculous abilities that the multitudes have seen in me so that they know that you've been sent by me. Right? I'm going to authenticate your message through these miraculous signs. I want them to see the power of the gospel on display in you. And I think that the first thing that this should remind us is that God's work is supernatural work. And that may sound like it goes without saying, but I think it needs to be said, and so I said it, right? We can never forget there, there is a supernatural component to everything that we believe in, everything that we're involved in, and all of this work that we're doing on the Lord's behalf. And when we go out with the gospel message, doing the work of the ministry, wherever we're going, Right? We need to go with the expectation that God is just going to do miraculous things. That there are going to be supernatural things that are happening. Whether it's the casting out of a demon or the healing of someone who's sick or the caring for someone in need in the name of Jesus, or whether it's the encouraging of someone who's in despair, whether it's the, the conveying of spiritual truth so that someone's eternal destiny is changed, right? None of that can take place without the supernatural enabling of God. And let me say this, none of those things are any less miraculous than the other because they all require the supernatural because they are all deal in the realm of the spiritual, right? So God's supernatural work requires his supernatural power and his enabling, and that's what's being given to them here. The first thing he does is he gives them this power they need to be successful. In this case, over demons, later we're gonna see powers of healing. Now here's the thing. This may seem like a little bit of a technicality, but I think it's super important. The word power here is not dunamis. It's not the dunamis like we each as the church have been promised in Acts 1.8 where Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me. Right? That's the power that we need in order to what? To be what it is we need to be 
as witnesses for him. So that's power for our Christian witness. This power is not that power. This is exousia, which means, well, you can read, it means authority, right? So he gave them the authority to do these things. He gave them authority over this, the demonic realm, just as he's clearly demonstrated that he has authority over them. But here's the thing, again, that we need to understand. Bear with me here. We're going to get in the weeds a little bit, but I think you'll see the point. What you need to understand is that, again, the tense of that word gave, when it says that he gave them power, it's in the imperfect tense. And without trying to be a geek about the Greek, remember, the idea of the imperfect tense is that it's something that's continuing to happen. Right? This wasn't just something he gave them once for all. Boom, Peter, here you go. Worldwide ministry of Peter delivering people from demons. That wasn't what we're talking about here. But what it means, this is something he was continuing to give them, which means that throughout all of their entire tour and all of these villages where they went preaching and teaching and casting out demons, it was Jesus the entire time who was continuing to give them the exousia. He continued to give them authority throughout their whole ministry, each and every step of their ministry. So none of us just has exousia. We're not given any kind of a permanent, permanent authority in our Christian service. We have dunamis, right? We have that and we have it in measure as much as we ask for. That's for daily living. Right? But we need to rely each and every step of the way in every sort of a ministry kind of a situation. We need to rely on Jesus for his enabling and his direction to act on his behalf and in his authority. Right? As we're out there and we're sharing and we're ministering the gospel and we're ministering in his name. And I think, again, the principle here for each one of us, we might all have a different calling in the body of Christ. But we all need God's supernatural equipping in order to fulfill that calling, right? God uses very ordinary people, but he's the one who will empower us to do extraordinary things. Whatever his calling is on your life, he will supply you and he will continuously supply you with everything you need to do it. Right? He'll give you all the direction, he'll give you all of the authority, he'll give you all of the gifting that you need. And I think now to help them understand this, Jesus now takes it from kind of the spiritual and he gives them an example that's super practical. Look what Jesus said next. It says, he commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He says, look, all that stuff you thought you needed to bring with you, you don't need any of that. Now, sometimes Bible students will wonder about the specifics of what Jesus tells them here that they can't bring. And, and many people believe it has to do with a rule which was in place at the time that the rabbis had established. They said that a person couldn't enter the temple area with a staff, shoes, or a money bag. 
right? Because they wanted to avoid even the appearance that you were up there engaged in any other kind of business. So Jesus may have just been helping the guys out by, you know, they were traveling light so they'd have kind of less to leave off there because they were involved in spiritual holy work. Now, I think indeed that could be part of what's being said here practically, but I think that there, what this says to us and what it said to them was way more straightforward than that in principle. And I think it speaks simply to another important principle in our ministry that it's important for us to realize that God's going to supply our needs, not just spiritually in terms of that supernatural enabling, but also practically, right, for all of the basic needs of whatever it is he's called us to do. And he'll supply that as we simply step out and obey that calling in our lives, right? God will give us everything that we need. He'll always be faithful to do it, and he wanted the disciples to experience it. So he calls on them just to head out and trust God and watch and see that God would take care of them through their ministry. And can I tell you that this is a great place for the Lord to have you? You know, when I think about ministry, of course, you know, in the context of a local church, I think so often in the ministry, as people are preparing for the ministry, we can get so caught up in what we think are the trappings of the ministry. And we think that is the ministry, and we start to really think that the ministry is all about the, the logos and the artwork and the buildings and the programs and the, the cafes and the, and the coffee. Now, we love the coffee, right? But you know, or the, the snacks, or it's the sound systems, or some sort of a software that we have to have. Whatever it is that people start to think they need in order just to do the ministry. You know what we need to do the ministry? We need the gospel, and we have it. Right, we need the word of God, and we have it. We need the spirit of God, and we have him, and we need to depend on God for the rest. We need to have a desperation for God for the rest. And I think that that's what he's trying to communicate here. I think sometimes we just forget what incredible power there is that is inherent in the gospel message. Right? Paul said what? That it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This gospel message that we have, it has the power to change lives presently, right? To transform lives and to bring healing and, and to bring restoration to broken lives. And of course, it also has the power to change destinies eternally, right? As we're, we're delivered from that power of darkness and we're conveyed into the kingdom of Jesus. So these are the things that the gospel does. These are the things that the word of God can do. And these are the things that nothing else in the world can do. These are the things that no other philosophy, no other program, no other wisdom can bring about those kinds of results in the life of a lost person. It's supernatural power for a supernatural work. And that's why it's all that we need. You know, in 2 Timothy 4, Paul was writing to Timothy, kind of as Timothy was really getting started in his ministry. And he says this, he says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. 
Okay, that's just the beginning, right? Now, this is sounding pretty serious. So what is it that Paul charges Timothy? I would be paying attention at this point. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort all, with all long-suffering and teaching. Simple translation, you guys. Stick to the Bible in your ministry because it is all you need for your ministry and for your service to the Lord. And I know you're like, okay, one more week of this. He's like a broken record. It's like the only message he has, right? I'm gonna keep saying it week after week after week because remember, in any ministry, we are not ma manufacturers. We are just messengers, right? We don't manufacture the message. We just distribute it. And God has already given us the message that he wants us to declare. And that message is what? It's the Bible. And when we move away from declaring God's word, what we've done is we're not giving the Holy Spirit anything to say amen to in that person's heart. It's the Holy Spirit that says amen and bears witness in our hearts when we hear something that's a spiritual truth. You guys know how it is on a Sunday morning. Sometimes I'll say something and you'll go, hmm, I'm not sure about that. Other times I'll say something and the Holy Spirit will say amen and you'll say, okay, he got that one right. Right? I know how it works. And the Holy Spirit always does that with the word of God. The Holy Spirit doesn't feel compelled to say amen to my ideas or my theories in the hearts of the people who are listening, but he always says amen to the word of God. That's why in Isaiah, the Lord promises that his word when it goes forth, it shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I've sent it. So all of this, you guys, I want you to believe in the power of the word of God and in the gospel of God, because that is the real spiritual dynamite. I want you to believe that that has the, that has the power to have the very same impact on the lives of other people as it's already had in your life. Right, The word of God and the gospel of God enabled and empowered by the spirit of God. It's everything we need from a practical point of view to be successful in whatever it is that God's called us. So if you're trying to encourage someone, encourage them using the word of God. If you're trying to counsel someone, then counsel them from the word of God. If you're trying to console someone, console them using the word of God. And if certainly if you're trying to convert someone, you need to convert them using the word of God. And then just watch the way that the spirit of God will supply everything else that's needed. So what great encouragement already, right? God uses very ordinary people. He empowers us to do these extraordinary things. He will give us everything that we need. And he also said to them in verse 10, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there till you depart from that place. So this is kind of an interesting one, but here's the scenario real quick. Jesus is talking about going into a city in order to preach the gospel. And the idea here is that, you know, hospitality was king in those days. But here's some godly family who sees you and invites you in to stay with them as you minister there in that city. And you go into their home and it's a, a simple home. The meals are simple but everything's nice. But then what happens after a few days, someone with maybe a nicer home 
as you start to get some notoriety there in the city, somebody with maybe a nicer home who's serving maybe some better meals, and they realize you're over there in this kind of a simpler situation, and they invite you to come stay with them, and now you got a chance for like kind of an upgrade, right? Into something that's maybe a little bit more comfortable for you. But Jesus says, no, you stay there with that first family that reached out to you and showed you hospitality. You stay there until you leave that place because to do anything else, you know, to suddenly say, hey, you know, they're serving tri-tip over there, so I'm out of here. Jesus says to do that, that would misrepresent me the way that I see things and the way that I see people and the way that I see homes. And it would also misrepresent the Lord and it would dishonor that first family. And I think that the, the whole use of this scenario, it is simply a reminder to us that we are never to put our personal comfort ahead of our responsibility to rightly represent Jesus. Or more simply said, don't put comfort ahead of calling. And boy, this is a hard one for us here in America, right? It's one that really speaks to us here in a culture that is absolutely addicted to comfort. When God calls and he, he comes to us and he wants us to take some kind of a step of faith, maybe head out and do something for the kingdom, maybe it is move to a different area, maybe even move to a different country, or maybe it's just some sort of sacrifice that we know he's asking us to make right here, right now, where we are. We say, you know, I know God's calling me to save up and go on that short-term missions trip, but it's so expensive, you know, and how am I going to afford my, my three lattes a day, you know? Right? Or, you know, I know God is really speaking to me about starting to serve in this particular ministry, but, you know, I, I just need my downtime. And I'm in the middle of these five different series on Netflix that I'm binging at night, and it's really hard to get up in the, you know, whatever it is. Right, where we know he's speaking to us about something, but we balk because we're addicted to comfort and we're, we're addicted to convenience. Not only are we not willing to endure any hardship to obey the call of God, we're not even willing to endure any inconvenience because we simply believe that we're entitled to this luxury that we all enjoy. Now, I am not trying to put a guilt complex on anybody. But I will say, if you're feeling convicted right now, it might not be my fault. I'm just going to, right? I just want us to be careful. Because unless we're aware of this, unless we're aware of this kind of a tendency of our flesh, it really can keep us from obeying God's call on our life. Because very often, he will allow us, or he'll even put us into uncomfortable situations where we are down there eating these vegan vegetables at this one house where they're serving tri-tip for breakfast, lunch, and dinner at this other place, and we can't go there. Now, I will tell you, I'll confess that I am as prone to this pitfall as anyone is. Not just the tri-tip pitfall, right? But this pitfall where we take our personal comfort or our financial security and we just kind of give it that greater place in our lives than we give to being obedient to God's word. 
Remember, it says that there was a certain scribe, and Matthew tells us this, a certain scribe that came and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, you wanna follow me? That's great, but you need to be willing to give up some comforts. And then he went on and gave that second example. It says another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go ahead and bury my father. But Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, sometimes a person can read that passage for the first time in the Bible and we think, what? Jesus wouldn't even let this guy go to his father's funeral? But that's not at all what's being said here. Because what this man is coming up and saying to Jesus, when he says, let me first go and bury my father, what he's actually saying is, let me stay at home until my father dies. And then when the inheritance is settled, and then when I have this financial security, then I'll be ready to come out and start following you. And that's why Jesus says, look, let the spiritually dead you know, bury the physically dead. I have more important things for you as my disciple. And the problem with this, you know, there's this great temptation always to think, you know, once I get myself a little bit more financially secure, then I'll be a little bit more open to really devoting some more time to Jesus and that call that I know, that thing that I know he's calling me to do. But the problem with that logic is what? You know it. We're never going to feel that we're financially secure if we're basing it solely on material things because we just will never have enough. And we'll get to the end of our lives and we'll realize that we have just frittered away our opportunity to step out in what it is that God's calling us. You guys, you know the only thing that we are taking to heaven is people. That's where we need to be investing our lives. So we need to resist this desire of our flesh for comfort. We need to, to press into what God has. And then Jesus warns them about something else. So he's just spoken to them about the importance of honoring the people that embrace them and receive them and who offer hospitality to them. Then he says in verse 11 that whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So here Jesus starts to talk about rejection, right? He's talking about the rejection that every single one of us is going to face as a Christian in this world. And especially as we start to step out and to be faithful to that thing that he's called us to do. And so he tells them and he's telling us that rejection simply for being faithful, it is simply a reality of our Christian calling. We need to accept it and we need to be prepared for it. He says, you need to get ready for rejection. He says, look, remember what just happened to me at Nazareth? You need to be prepared because that kind of thing just comes with the territory. But then notice he goes beyond that. He goes beyond just giving them this warning and he turns it into some important 
instruction, right? What we're supposed to do when we do experience this rejection. And he brings up this whole like shaking the dust from your sandals kind of a scenario. Again, there was a custom that day amongst the Jews that if Jewish people went in or through a Gentile city, as they left that city, they would shake off the edge of their sandals, you know, like bang their sandals together to get all of that dust off of their sandals and off their feet. And it was a gesture that sort of said, look, we don't want to take anything. We don't even want to take the smallest speck of dust from this Gentile city. We don't want to bring that in and, you know, sort of pollute our holy land. And so Jesus includes this now in the kind of in this context of Christian service and the ministering the gospel message. And first, let me tell you, Jesus is not communicating. He's not saying that we're supposed to do that in order to give them some sort of a, you know, let them know how superior we are to them that we're just somehow better than them or smarter than them. We're not supposed to do it just to show how angry we are with them over being rejected. He's not saying, go stand out at the city and make this big thing and really just get all in your flesh and worked up and be out there for a half hour. That's not what he's communicating. But what he is saying, notice he's saying that in doing this, it's not to be vindictive. He said that it would be instructive for the people who just rejected you. And here's why, because it would help to communicate in the minds of those people the grave seriousness of the decision that they had just made in rejecting you and in rejecting the gospel and in rejecting the word of God. Notice Jesus says that that whole dusty sandal deal, it was a testimony against them. This was a visual warning. You know, there are, there are certain people, there's a certain kind of person who will reject God. They'll completely reject the message of God and the messengers of God. But then as you leave, it's like they'll send you away like with some bananas, right? In like a tribal city, right? Or they'll give you some kind of a blessing or they'll give you some sort of a donation because even though they've rejected the message, if they're able to just give you something, it sort of eases their conscience. They kind of feel like, well, I did something for God here. And if we accept that from them, we're sending a mixed message, right? We minimize just how terrible of a decision they have just made in rejecting Jesus. And in this Jewish culture, this very dramatic sort of sign of shaking off the Gentile dust, if you did that to a Jewish city, what that would do is it would just force them to sit there alone with their rejection of God's message. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when, when you're sharing with someone and they reject the gospel, Right? It's like we don't like the awkwardness and so immediately we want to make everything okay and we say, oh, okay, no worries. Maybe, maybe next time on the gospel thing, right? We'll revisit this. Let's put a pin in this. But I'm telling you guys, it would be better to say nothing and just let them sit there in the awkwardness in their discomfort. And the point is here that we are never to do anything that would cause a person to think that their rejection of Jesus Christ is not a big deal. 
Right? No one will ever be a great soul winner or a preacher or a Bible teacher or a Christian worker. No one will ever be able to stay true to God's message who doesn't understand that there is a judgment right on the other side of this life. There is an eternity on the other side of that decision that a person is making in terms of what they're going to do with Jesus Christ. We need to remember that people's eternities hang in the balance. Right, that it's appointed for men to die once, Hebrews chapter 9, but after that, the judgment. And Jesus punctuates this very important point. He brings up this example of Sodom and Gomorrah, says it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for those people who just rejected the gospel. Why? Because those people from Sodom and Gomorrah who may have repented even as the fire was raining down from heaven, they could still possibly have been forgiven. But for those who refuse to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is no forgiveness. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There is no pardon for that. Jesus says, I want you to go out. I want you to understand the stakes you are going to get rejected. You might get run out of town. Believe me, he says, they're not going to believe you in certain places. But you go anyway. You know, so for all of us as Christ followers, it is very possible that you may likely be very lonely even amongst your friends. You might be lonely even amongst your family. You might be lonely even in your own home. You might be lonely in that church that you always grew up in. You might take heat for it because people don't understand what's happened to you. They don't understand what it means to be born again. They don't understand that you're filled now with a different spirit. Right? That you're filled now with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus here wants us to know when we are rejected by others because we're being faithful to what God has called us to do. He wants us to know without a doubt that we are right and they are wrong. And he's not telling us this to produce some sort of an arrogance in us, but he's doing it to produce something that we deeply need inside of us, and that's just a settled confidence and a, a conviction because that steadies us and it grounds us. Right? It's easy to get kind of shaken up. There can be so much rejection so often in, in what we're trying to do for God, as we're trying to represent God, as we're trying to reach into people's life for the Lord. There can be so much rejection that sometimes we'll start to wonder, right? Am I crazy? But Jesus says, you know what? What you need to know in the face of that rejection, you need to know you are right and they are wrong. Even if you start to feel like Noah, Right? And you, at this point, you, you start to feel like you are one of just eight people in the entire world. Jesus says, you're still right, and they're still wrong. They're the ones that need to change, not you. It's a pretty heavy section, but it's an important section. So here, think about what Jesus has told these guys. He's given them this priceless instruction He's given them these insights into his heart as they step out and go into the harvest field. And finally, look in our last two verses. It says that the disciples, they went out and preached that people should repent. 
And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So they went out and they did just what Jesus told them to do. And notice that Jesus did just what he promised he would do. So after all of that, right, God using ordinary people and empowering us to do extraordinary things and giving us everything we need and we have to guard against putting our comfort over our calling and we have to get ready for rejection and finally, we just need to go do our part and watch the Lord do his part. He empowered them. He enabled them as they were faithful. And what do we see? We see that demons were expelled and many were healed and the gospel of the kingdom was preached. Now, before you get too tripped up by that word preached and you think somehow it doesn't apply to you because you're not the one standing up here, it actually does. But nice try, right? Preach simply means what? Proclaim. It just means you're telling others in the sense that you're just announcing something to them. And the truth is, you guys, that some of the best, most effective preaching happens, it never actually happens inside a church from a pulpit. But I think that the most effective preaching often happens when followers of Jesus are just one-on-one -on -one with other people. And we simply are having that opportunity to tell them about Jesus, to tell them about what Jesus has done in our lives, and then just to encourage them that he wants to do that very same thing in their life and that all they need to do in order for that to happen is to repent. Now, there's another one of those words again, right? As if preach wasn't bad enough, now we got repent thrown in the mix. But repent doesn't need to be a bad word. Remember, repent just simply means what? to change the mind. So they were proclaiming that people needed to change their minds about Jesus Christ and the claim that he had on their life. And that's a challenge for any of you here today. If you don't know Jesus Christ, right? If you've not come to know Jesus Christ, what he's asking of you is repentance. He's not asking you to be perfect. He's not asking you to do anything but to change the way you think about him and then you watch the way that he'll do the rest. Here's the reality. The culture we're living in, they want a Jesus, but they want a Jesus who's not gonna mess with their lives. Right? They, oh yeah, Jesus, he's a great guy. He did good things. He's a great teacher. But, but don't come at me with some Jesus that's going to change the way that I live. Right? What did Paul tell us? He says that the last days, he says they're going to be what? Perilous times. You guys know the passage. He says men are going to be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's a pretty complete list. And is it not exactly what we see each and every day in our culture? And yet here's the crux of the issue. Paul says that all of that's going to be happening, but people are going to have a form of godliness, but deny its power. People are going to want to have everything that they want. They want their pleasure more than they want God. They want this form of religion that's going to allow them to just have it all. And they don't want anything to do with that power 
that comes to change them and makes them godly. It's like somebody that says, oh yeah, I go to church. It's a great church. Anybody can come and you can live however you want to live. They don't put any of those trips on you, right? Again, that's a form of religion, but it denies the power that comes as part of it, the power of the gospel of Jesus that is inherent, that wants to change your life and transform you more and more each day into his image. It's that power that causes that regeneration of the new birth, that power to be set free from that life they were living and now live a life in the presence of God, a life according to the word of God and these claims that we know that God has on each and every one of us. And so repentance simply means that we understand that and then as a result of understanding that, we simply turn from that self-determined direction that we were headed away from God, and we simply turn now, we turn our minds, we turn our focus toward God. We change our minds about him. That's the power of Jesus Christ to set us free. And it said that they went out and they proclaimed it out loud everywhere, repentance. They proclaimed, you can turn. You can change your mind about who Jesus is. You can understand that he's Savior and that he's Lord. You can be set free. You can be born again. What a great message. You don't have to stay the way that you are, scattered and weary and broken and desperate. You can turn to the Lord. And you can be healed, not just physically as we see them healing here, but you can be healed spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice Mark specifically mentioning that they anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I gotta bring this up, it's interesting. You Bible students will find this interesting. This is the only reference in all of the Gospels to this practice of anointing with oil. Right? The only other reference is when James later will talk about it in his very practical epistle. He says, if any of you are sick, let him call for the elders and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Neither one of these are simply talking about oil in a medicinal sense, because if it was, we wouldn't need doctors, right? We wouldn't need hospitals. We just need a case of Wesson oil, and we'd just be pouring it over everybody all the time. But of course, what it's talking about is that throughout the Bible, beginning way back in the Old Testament, oil is an emblem, right? It's a picture of what? The Holy Spirit, right? And when someone is anointed with oil, what it symbolizes is that they're now placing themselves in a position where they're in submission to that work that the Holy Spirit wants to do in their life. It's not the oil that's doing the healing, right? It's the power of God's spirit as he is poured out on that person and received in faith. And I believe that Mark includes this, this mention of the oil here, right? Under the inspiration, of course, of the Holy Spirit. But I believe that Mark includes it as a reminder that everything we've seen here in our text Right? Everything that Jesus has laid out for us as we're stepping out in faith and in service, that all of it, right, all the healing that might come, it will only come as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that he's the one who brings deliverance and he's the one who gives life. He's the one that provides healing and that this, that all of this is nothing less than the supernatural work of a sovereign God as we simply do our part partnering with him to do what it is he's called us to do. Now, as we close, I wanna leave us with one last thing. I wanna kind of circle back to one of the first things we said. Remember Jesus looking out here on the multitudes. Matthew tells us that he said to the disciples that the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I want to leave us with this today because these words still ring true from the Lord's perspective and from the longing of his heart. Just think about it from a human perspective. Think about a farmer, right, who has put all of this work into a fields, fields of some crop or, or some kind of orchard. And to get it to that place of maturity where it is now finally ready to be harvest. Harvested, harvested, harvested to be harvested. Anyway, so it's finally at that point where you can pick it, right? And so what does the farmer do? He searches for workers and he makes calls and he puts up flyers, right? Everything he can, but he cannot get enough people to come and to pick that precious fruit, right? You simply cannot find the laborers that you need to bring in what you know is this plentiful harvest. And you as the farmer know everything that went into bringing it to this point. And I truly believe when we think about it from that perspective, I believe that the Lord would say to us, he would say, I have put so much into bringing people to a place where they will listen and they will hear. But I am having trouble getting enough laborers at just this most critical moment in time. And we have been for 2,000 years at this most critical moment in time. And the harvest is still both ready and it is plentiful. Despite what we may have been told, despite what we might think, despite what we maybe have read or what we've heard. And, and we are either going to believe the assessment that Jesus makes here about the world and how prepared it is for the things of God, or we're gonna believe the assessment of our culture or of our media or the pollsters or the researchers or the reports that tell us over and over that somehow Christianity is in decline, right? Maybe we're even gonna believe the report of our own heart, right? We can get to that point where we start to tell ourselves, you know what, I don't even think anybody's gonna listen anyway. I don't think anybody's ready. I don't think anybody's heart has been prepared by God for this harvest or for, for what he's called me to do. And we can start to think that, and yet here, I believe that God's word says otherwise. And we are either simply by faith gonna enter into that calling and be part of that harvest, Right? We're either going to believe all these other voices that keep us out of the harvest or we're going to believe what Jesus says here. Right, And we're going to believe that the harvest is plentiful. We're going to believe that the harvest is ready as the Lord looks at this harvest from heaven and we're going to simply trust that the only thing that he needs is laborers. The only thing that he needs are laborers who are willing 
to go in and be used by him to bring in that plentiful harvest and to do it in the power that the Holy Spirit supplies us. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for how instructive it is and encouraging it is. And, Father, I do pray, Lord, for any of us who struggle with what it is that you're calling us to do, Lord, what our part is in the advancing of your kingdom, Lord. I pray first and foremost that you'd make that uh, clear in our hearts, Lord. Speak to each one of us. Lord, help us to know what that is, Lord, whether it's ministry at home or ministry in the workplace, Lord, whether it's vocational ministry or bivocational ministry, whatever it is, Lord, I pray that you'd make that clear to each one of us, Lord, and then really stir our hearts, Lord, to make ourselves available to be laborers, Lord, and to enter into the field and help us to believe that the harvest is, is first plentiful, Lord, and that it's prepared. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Let's stand and let's, uh, let's worship. Mm -hmm.